0: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed.
1: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road.
2: Margaret Brennan in Washington and this week on Face the Nation. Preparations to distribute the yet to be approved coronavirus vaccine pick up speed as America braces for the fallout from the Thanksgiving holiday. Wave three of the pandemic continues its rise and America continues to be blanketed with new cases of COVID-19. This month has seen a million new reported infections a week. Government agencies are working with state officials to determine who will get the vaccine first, as warnings continue that the pandemic will likely get a lot worse before it gets better.
3: There's real hope, tangible hope. So hang on, don't let yourself surrender to the fatigue. I know we can and we will beat this virus. America's not going to lose this war.
2: But with more than 6 million Americans traveling by air this Thanksgiving holiday week so far, and tens of millions more by road, and after holiday surge, will put already overwhelmed hospitals in even more dire straits and likely spike the death rate even higher. We'll hear from a top member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, Dr. Deborah Birx, and we'll talk with two mayors from cities struggling with the virus, Mayor DeMargo of El Paso and Mayor Mike Duggan of Detroit. Former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb will be with us and will take a look at the hunger crisis facing America and the world with Claire Babineau-Fontenot of Feeding America and David Beasley, head of the United Nations World Food Program. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to face the nation. The phrase that's been running through our minds here is the darkest hour is just before the dawn. The English theologian and historian Thomas Fuller is credited with coming up with it in 1650, but it feels pretty appropriate as we move into winter and 2021. In the month of November, which isn't even over yet, we've recorded four million new cases. That's more than double the number of October infections. WE BEGIN THIS MORNING WITH CBS NEWS NATIONAL CORRESPONDENT MARK Strassman IN ATLANTA.
3: COVID'S COMMUNITY SPREAD HAD A BUSY THANKSGIVING. THE VIRUS HAD A CHANCE TO CATCH UP WITH LOTS OF FAMILY. IN JAMMED AIRPORTS AND IN STORES WITH BLACK FRIDAY DEEP DISCOUNTS. RED TAGS, RED FLAGS. AT CURRENT RATES, ROUGHLY 114 MORE AMERICANS TEST POSITIVE EVERY MINUTE. 65 MORE AMERICANS Die from COVID every hour. And America could start to see 3,000 COVID deaths a day, more than died on September 11th. COVID has also blitzed the NFL from coast to coast. Tougher new restrictions in California's Santa Clara County leave the 49ers without a place to play or practice for the next three weeks. The Denver Broncos need to find a quarterback today. All four on their roster are now in quarantine. And 18 Baltimore Ravens tested positive this week. In the overwhelmed Midwest, the epidemic showing signs of peaking. Not in South Dakota, where at least 30% of residents have been infected. 43% of people tested here this week tested positive. But for many, mask mandates remain even less popular than the virus. This is cowboy country, man. And you try and tell someone to do something and they wanna do the opposite outrage in West Virginia. Masks now a must in all indoor public
4: spaces. And many, many people that were calling and they were saying to me over and over and over, we want to be like South Dakota. We want to be South Dakota. Well, I don't want to be South Dakota. I'm
3: pleading. Hypocrisy grabbed the Thanksgiving spotlight in Denver. Mayor Michael Hancock urged residents to stay home. An hour later, he was spotted boarding a flight with his family to Mississippi. But the way millions more Americans gave thanks this year, they should get them in return. They celebrated the holiday and each other by staying apart. As one Chicago health official put it, better to have a Zoom Thanksgiving than an ICU Christmas. Thanksgiving travel is way down this year, but at airports like Atlanta's, the COVID risk will grab the spotlight again today. Last year, the Sunday after Thanksgiving was the busiest day in TSA history
2: Margaret: Mark, thank you. According to the White House Coronavirus Task Force, there are now 48 states plus the District of Columbia now in the red zone. Just Maine and Hawaii are not. We' want to go now to the coordinator of that task force, Dr. Deborah Burks. She joins us from Selbyville, Delaware. Good morning to you, Dr. Burks. It's great to have you back.:
5: Good morning, Margaret. Thank you for having me.
2: The numbers are pretty staggering. I know we crossed uh, at least twice this week, a daily death count over 2000. It's the first time we've seen that during this pandemic. Dr. Fauci said this morning, we're seeing a surge on top of a surge. What do Americans need to be prepared for?
5: I think what worries Dr. Fauci and I the most is going, and I loved your opening where you talked about several waves and this being the third wave. If you look at the second wave, Going into the Memorial Day weekend, we had less than 25,000 cases a day. We had only 30,000 inpatients in the hospital, and we had way less mortality, way under 1,000. We're entering this post-Thanksgiving surge with three, four, and 10 times as much disease across the country. And so that's what worries us the most. We saw what happened post-Memorial Day. Now we are deeply worried about what could happen post-Thanksgiving because the number of cases, 25,000 versus 180,000 a day, that's where, that's why we are deeply concerned. And as you described, it looked like things were starting to improve in our Northern Plains states. And
2: now with Thanksgiving, we're worried that all of that will be reversed. What capacity is there to backstop overwhelmed hospitals?
5: Well, so that is obviously all of our concerns. Um, and that's why we're really asking states and mayors to really test for impact and consider vaccinating for impact. We know who's at highest risk, making sure that all of those individuals are tested. We know people may have made mistakes over the hospital over the Thanksgiving time period. So if you're young and you gathered, you need to be tested about five to 10 days later, but you need to assume that you're infected and not go near your grandparents and aunts and others without a mask. We're really asking families to even mask indoors if they chose to gather during Thanksgiving and others went across the country or even into the next state. And if you're over 65 or you have comorbidities and you gathered at Thanksgiving, if you develop any symptoms, you need to be tested immediately because we know that our therapeutics work best both our antivirals and our monoclonal antibodies work best very early in disease Mm -hmm. so we're really asking governors and mayors to make testing more available so we can prevent people having to be hospitalized But obviously we're deeply worried. We're over 90,000 inpatients right now. If we have a surge two weeks on top of that, even when we are starting to see some improvement, I appreciate that you have mayor from Detroit on. They're really, all these mayors are working to decrease their number of cases and getting to a plateau. And now we could have a, a fourth surge.
2: Are you asking, I know you've been traveling the country. Are you asking governors to close the bars to keep schools open? Is that your advice?
5: First, what we do know works is mass mandates, mass requirements. In states that did those, or mayors or counties that did that, we can see a, dr- a really significant difference in not only cases, but hospitalizations and fatalities. And so, starting with mass mandates and remasking requirements, absolutely key. Followed by, if you have high case numbers and you're seeing increased hospitalizations, The first thing you should do is close spaces where people cannot wear masks, and we know Mm -hmm. where that is. That's bars and indoor restaurants. Reduce capacity, if needed, you may have to even close them. We have seen that that works, that's what Arizona did, and that's where Arizona got control. Arizona is in the position that they need to be really considering this again, because their case numbers are up where they were in the summer.
2: When will you begin briefing the Biden administration?
5: I hope on Monday, because what's really critical is we've spent the last nine months really developing sophisticated databases that are bringing together information from across the the country down to the county level. We can see who's being admitted. We can see who's getting sick. We can see where this virus is moving in communities. And I think the one thing that we will bring to the Biden administration in that discussion is to understand how they want to see the data, because data isn't helpful if it's not actionable. Mm -hmm. And each group needs to see it the way it makes them, moves them to action. And that's why we write the governor's report weekly, to really ensure every governor understands what we're seeing and what we think needs to be done.
2: There are still uh, 10 weeks or so of the Trump presidency left. Uh, When Have you last briefed the president, and why aren't we hearing from him? Well, I
5: brief the vice president, obviously, daily. Um, I write a daily report that goes up to him every single day. It It has a synopsis of what's happening across the country, state by state, county by county, hospital by hospital, who's being admitted, what the age group of the admissions are, Um, and what our recommendations are at the highest levels of government. And that same document goes to senior leaderships in HHS um, every single day to really alert them to what I'm seeing in the data each early morning.
2: And and what is your message if you did have the chance to brief the president? I know The Washington Post said he hasn't uh, attended a meeting in at least five months of the task force. But what is your chief concern, your chief message to the public and to the president?
5: To every American, and I know we have some incredibly independent and fabulous Americans, I've met them on my trips, that have spent a lifetime protecting their land, protecting their livestock, and protecting their families. To every American, this is the, this is the moment to protect yourself and your family. And so if your governor or your mayor isn't doing the policies that we know are critical, masking physical distancing, avoiding bars, avoiding crowded indoor areas. If those restrictions don't exist in your state, you need to take it upon yourself to be restrictive. You need to not go to these places. You need to protect your family now. And really watch if your family traveled, you have to assume that you were exposed and you Mm -hmm. became infected and you really need to get tested in the next week. And you need to avoid anyone in your family with comorbidities or or over 65 because now is the moment to what happened would have happened. I mean, we know that people got together in Thanksgiving. That the moment mm-hmm. now is to pro- is to protect those from having secondary and tertiary transmissions yes. within the family.
2: Dr. Burks, thank you and good luck. Let's turn now to the Midwest. Michigan ranks third in the number of COVID-19 deaths last week. Most new cases of the virus are in and around the city of Detroit, where hospitals are nearing 90 percent capacity. Joining us now is Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan. Good morning to you, Mr. Mayor.
6: Thanks for having me on, Margaret.
2: Uh, what's driving the infections and what do you expect to see over the next few weeks?
6: Uh, well, the numbers you're showing are the area. Uh, the city of Detroit is the illustration of what Dr. Burks just said. She's been to my office and we spent time at this, but Detroit actually has the lowest infection rate in the state of Michigan, where half of that uh, of the surrounding suburbs. Uh, And it's because behavior changed in March and April, Michigan was hammered along with New York and we had within a few weeks, a thousand people hospitalized and 50 of our neighbors dying every day. Today, we've got about 200 hospitalized and we're losing one or two people a day to COVID. It's still uh, too high, but the commitment to the testing, the commitment to the masks has shown uh, that you can dramatically drop the infection rate.
2: When you say behavior changed, you have a mask mandate. What's changed?
6: Uh, So, well, in March and April, we didn't know. Uh, uh, Certainly, people in Detroit took to heart the data that showed if an African-American gets COVID, you've got a two to three times more likely chance to die than a Caucasian. Uh, And so, uh, in Detroit, uh, assembly lines are in our DNA. We set up the biggest and most efficient drive-through testing site in the Midwest at the Mm -hmm. fairgrounds. We were testing 1,000 or 1,200 people a day. And all summer and into the fall, if you drove around this city, Detroiters were wearing masks. It was not necessarily true uh, in the surrounding communities. And the governor has made this point repeatedly. uh, But literally in Detroit, we have an infection rate less than half that of the surrounding suburbs. If you make the commitment to the masks, we don't have to shut the economy of this country down. Uh, But it means you have to do it. It isn't that hard.
2: You were a hospital CEO before you became mayor. Um, There are several health systems in the state of Michigan where reportedly they're telling hospital workers to come to work even if they've had close contact with a loved one who has COVID-19. How bad are the staffing shortages at your local hospitals?
6: Again, in the city of Detroit, we're in good shape. As I indicated, in April, we you have, have 1,000 you need. people hospitalized today, 200, in, in the city. Now, you go outside to the suburbs, it's a, a different situation. And so now we're very much focused on the vaccinations. And uh, I was on a, a call with a number of mayors with President-elect Biden who made the point there's a big difference between vaccines and vaccinations. And we're looking now at the reality that When we were testing 1200 people a day, that was a major undertaking. Mm -hmm. To get the vaccinations out, we're gonna have to vaccinate 5,000 a day just in Detroit. And this country is not yet geared up. Uh, And and so to me, people saying vaccines are coming, vaccines are coming. We haven't begun as a country to address what it's gonna take to actually well, uh, inject people uh, with the vaccine?
2: No, it's a fair point, and it's ultimately going to be up to the state governors to execute on that. So what do you know about the state of Michigan and what's going to happen in your city?
6: Well, Governor Whitmer has been terrific from the beginning, but the, the direction we're getting from Washington is changing literally uh, by the day. But we know in Detroit, we're going to take our convention center, we're going to take the parking structures around our football and baseball stadiums because we when we were doing the huge testing in the summer, you had good weather. Mm-hmm. You can't do wholesale vaccinations in January, February, and March out in snowstorms. And so we're probably going to take all of the major parking structures. And as soon as the vaccines are available, January or February, uh, we're going to gear up. And, and we intend to vaccinate 5,000 a day. We know the pharmacies are going to be helpful. The doctors and hospitals will be helpful. But the magnitude of what we're talking about, this country is never... Uh, experience. And basically right now we're day and night getting ready uh, for wholesale vaccinations. Uh,
2: You talked about how disproportionately hard African-Americans in particular have been by this virus. In your city, in your opinion, who do you think should be prioritized? Should you prioritize people based on their demographics? Should you prioritize them based on their occupation?
6: Well, I think we're going to, certainly occupation is going to go first and What the feds are talking about now is hospital workers going first, then EMTs, police officers, firefighters and the like. And then I think people over the age of 65, the death rate on people over 65 is so much higher uh, than those who are younger. That's the way they're talking about it. I will be really glad uh, when uh, Joe Biden takes control of this uh, Mm -hmm. and we get clear direction. Uh, but we will follow whatever protocols are there. Okay. You think about the city of Detroit with 700,000 people. If yeah. you uh, were able to vaccinate uh, 5,000 a day, you're still talking three or four months. And that's the same right. challenge everybody in the country's got.
2: Right. Uh, and we will be covering it. Thank you very much, Mr. Mayor. Face the Nation. We'll be back in a minute. Stay with us. We go now to El Paso, Texas, where the pandemic is crushing that city of uh, just short of 700,000 people. The number of people hospitalized with COVID-19 there is more than the number hospitalized in 19 states and the District of Columbia. We're joined by its mayor, D. Margot. Good morning to you, Mr. Mayor. Uh, I mean, the stories that I'm reading about your city—you're uh, talking about hiring mobile morgues and having inmates. Carry bodies. The National Guard has now offered help as well. The convention center has been turned into a hospital. Why is your city getting hit so hard?
8: Margaret, we're not real sure. We, we hit uh, oh, about almost six weeks ago. We started spiking significantly. Um, I think people just uh, the, the consensus is people just had COVID fatigue and they let down. As Dr. Burke said, you got to wear the mask and you got to maintain the distancing and you gotta avoid the crowds. Uh, We did a deep dive in our contact tracing for the week of uh, November the 10th through the 16th and found out that uh, 55% of the positives were coming from shopping at large retailers, what we term as the big box stores. Mm -hmm. And those are considered essential under uh, CISA guidelines and the Homeland Security. And we don't really have, I don't have any control over any limitations there. We've asked for voluntary limitations and Walmart and several others are starting to meter, meaning they're gonna limit the occupancy of their their, uh, their stores, mm-hmm. which we think so. We also dug up the fact that previously our, over 52% of our positives were coming the ages of, of 20 to 39. Now it's 30 to 50. Mm-hmm. So we're just trying to maintain, but recently, and I'm, I'm fearful to even mention it, we've started to seem like we're starting to maybe plateau. On Thanksgiving day, we had 406 positives the next day was
6: 678,
8: yeah. 590, and, and then now we're down. But this weekend is always a misnomer for us because of uh, the fact that the private labs are not reporting right. on the weekend. Right. right. We're, we're just holding that.
2: So those numbers may be worse, in other words. I, I know you just said that you can't shut down big box stores because they're deemed essential. but. At a certain point, because of what you're talking about, if people aren't taking personal responsibility for themselves in their own behavior, do you, as mayor, need to shut down what businesses you can?
8: Well, we took action. I took action, uh, as Dr. Burks talked about the bars and the gathering. I took action almost six weeks ago to close bar restaurants at 9 p.m.
2: Right, but restaurants and, are still uh, open, and other stores.
8: Whether. The uh, the restaurant bars were we were seeing a lot of congregating there, and so we shut them down at 9 p.m. for in in dining. Uh, the state of Texas allowed bars to convert to to restaurants with food trucks. And that mm-hmm. Kind of uh, some of them were kind of gaming the system, we think, and there was a lot of congregation there. But uh, you know, when we look at the Rio Grande Valley in Hidalgo County, which went through a spike just before ours, we talked to their health department. What they discovered in their contact tracing was the majority of their positives were coming from from home gatherings and that's that's also still problematic here i mean we're we're a multi-generational community and family is big and, yeah. and there's travel to mexico there's also those issues but uh, we're hopeful that we're you know getting our arms around it and people are understanding it right now in the hospital the, the latest numbers i have on our hospitalization is we we are at 79% of our hospitalization capacity which gives us 21% excess of which we didn't have we haven't had yeah. in some
6: time
2: I want so. to ask you I'm going to ask you because you are in a majority Hispanic city and I know the CDC has said Hispanics are four times as likely to be hospitalized than white Americans do you know what your state's plan is to distribute a vaccine and do you think that demographics um, ethnic makeup needs to be a priority there versus prioritizing people based on occupation?
8: Well, I think the, the the primary the governor has put out a, a directive. We we purchased with our CARES Act funding four locations in addition to the three that our public health has for vaccine distribution and vaccinations. Um, we, we bought the freezers. We, we, bought, we bought the refrigerators that are required. But the governor has put out that the the, the primary first responders, healthcare mm-hmm. workers, will be the primary recipients, and then the most vulnerable as Mayor Dugan talked about, will be number two. And, yes, we are highly vulnerable as a community.
2: And
8: uh, four times what what the average white Caucasian is.
2: Well, uh, Mr. Mayor, we wish you the best of luck. Thank you. Coming up in the next half hour, CBS Foreign Correspondent Holly Williams reports from Iraq and Syria. She'll tell us why the region will present one of the greatest challenges for President-elect Biden. We'll be right back with a lot more Face the Nation. Stay with us.
9: What makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com
2: to learn more. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We want to go now to CBS senior foreign correspondent Liz Palmer in London on how tough restrictions in parts of Europe seem to be successful.
10: Good morning. Well, there's some good news for a change from Europe today. The widespread lockdowns have worked and the COVID infection rate is coming down, which means that some of those restrictions are now being lifted. Employees at the main Paris department store welcomed customers for the first time in a month. This applause signals relief that holiday shopping can at last begin. Germany's businesses will postpone opening up for a while yet. For example, eat-in restaurants have to stay closed for three more weeks. But how about this next-level takeout? The Neumünster Cooking School offers five-star curb service. You just have to come in your own RV. It's a boy. No. It's not so festive on Europe's ski slopes. Most of them will stay shut until at least January. Though Switzerland, where there is already plenty of snow, is bucking the trend. There's a winter wonderland in Moscow too. But skaters have to glove up and go through so-called disinfection booths to glide around this year on the vast rink in Red Square. Russia's infection rate, unlike Europe's, is surging up nearly 30% this month. Compare that with Australia. Beaches are full. Overhead, but out of sight, drones watch for overcrowding. But people are relaxed with reason. After months of severe restrictions, the virus is under control. Only eight cases in the past 24 hours. Oh, Oh, did you hear that? And finally, there's a new covid christmas ritual virtual visiting with santa and it does appear that the magic works just as well clear through the screen here in britain the vaccine rollout looks imminent some of the papers are reporting this morning it could go ahead with the pfizer version of the vaccine as early as the 7th of december
2: margaret liz thank you We want to go now to former FDA Commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who joins us from Westport, Connecticut. He sits on the board at Pfizer, one of the drug companies preparing a vaccine. Good morning to you. Uh, You could could really hear the concern in Dr. Birx's description of what she thinks is about to hit this country. Uh, You look at South Dakota. It was the latest case to see one COVID death for every 1,000 residents. Is the whole country going to look like South Dakota?
11: Hopefully not. I think parts of the country are going to be able to um, do better than the Midwest is doing and certainly better than South Dakota and North Dakota are doing. If you see what's happening in the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic states where governors took more aggressive steps early, where there's more consistent use of masks, where they took less infection going into this season, I think you're going to see infection rates remain lower than we're seeing in other parts of the country like the Midwest. Also, there's a lot of testing available here. So they're taking more aggressive steps to try to contain the infection. If you look at states like South Dakota and the Midwest generally, you're starting to see the number of new infections slow. And that's a reflection of the fact that they have fully infected at least 30% of the population in states like South Dakota, maybe as high as 50% if you look at some of the modeling. So at some point you have such a high rate of infection in these parts of the country that you're gonna see a natural slowing of new infections because the people who are eligible to be infected, who are vulnerable, have already gotten the virus.
2: I mean, is that the strategy, the federal strategy to just hope for the best?
11: Well, look, quite frankly, that's been the strategy of some people, this so-called herd immunity strategy. They don't say that explicitly, but some people think that you really can't stop this virus and we just have to let it run its course and do our best to protect those who are vulnerable. We're not doing a very good job of protecting the vulnerable. Almost 8% of all nursing home residents have perished as a result of this pandemic since the start of the year but um, there are some people who don't think you can really fully stop this virus. I disagree with that. I think you look at parts of the country, look at New York, look at my home state of Connecticut. um, There's a lot of infection here. These states are pressed right now, but you're not seeing the widespread rates of transfer that you're seeing in other parts of the country that haven't taken more aggressive steps. And I would argue that the economy in South Dakota and parts of the country that let this run a little bit more and didn't really take aggressive steps, didn't put in place mask mandates, didn't close congregate things like bars and restaurants. I don't think there's really evidence that they've done better economically than parts of the country that took more prudent steps. What's really keeping consumers home is the virus. Why why people aren't going out to eat is they don't want to go into restaurants and risk getting infected. It's not the mandates and the state action that's keeping people home. It's the infection.
2: Mm -hmm. The CDC is considering shortening the amount of recommended time for a quarantine. What does that accomplish?
11: Look, I think this is a prudent step. I think we should have contemplated this earlier because the reality is most people who get exposed to COVID are gonna come down with COVID, um, who get exposed to coronavirus, will come down with COVID within a short period of time, figure five to seven days. There are some outliers and some people, there is evidence that some people won't contract the infection until a full 14 days after exposure. but What you want are recommendations that are prudent and practical that people are going to follow. And when you have a 14-day quarantine period, that's such a long period of time that a lot of people aren't going to follow that anyway. And it makes it difficult to adhere to recommendations. And so putting in place a 10-day quarantine period, even a seven-day quarantine period, you're going to capture the vast majority of infections within that time frame. So I think you need to balance the practicality of what you're recommending um, with people's ability and willingness to comply with it.
2: You need a degree in psychology to uh, figure out how to get people to comply these days. Dr. Fauci said on another network this morning, there's not enough vaccine right now to vaccinate healthcare workers next month. That's the reason why this happens, uh, that it goes to the states, that the amount of vaccine gets shipped locally. And then the final decision of how to do that properly will be left up to the states. What does he mean? What what should be the deciding factor in who gets the vaccine? And are we short on supply already?
11: We are short on supply. We're, we're not gonna have enough supply to vaccinate everyone who could be eligible for this vaccine and who could benefit it from, certain, from it certainly. The federal government this week on December 1st is gonna make recommendations. A vaccine advisory committee that advises CDC will make recommendations on who should get the vaccine first, the so-called 1A group, the people who should get it immediately when it becomes available, hopefully in in December, if there's one or more authorization of vaccines this month, including from the company, I'm on the board of Pfizer. That's gonna be healthcare workers and and residents of long-term care facilities. There's about 20 million healthcare workers who might be eligible and about 3 million residents of long-term care facilities and staff of those facilities. Those will be the first group of patients who get access to it. Um, that's pretty much decided. They're gonna vote on it this week, but I wouldn't be, I'd not be be—I'd be very surprised if they deviate from that. But there's only gonna be 40 million doses available um, throughout the whole month of December, if both companies get authorized on time. So there's probably not enough vaccine to f- work fully through both of those groups. And then there's a question of who's gonna be in that second tranche, what we're calling 1B. And there is some debate mm-hmm. whether that's gonna be older Americans, those over the age of 65 or 75, or certain essential workers or some combination of both. There's about 85 million essential workers who might be eligible to be vaccinated if you you bifurcate it to that group. And there's Mm -hmm. about 50 million people over the age of 65, 20 million over the age of 75. And so that's gonna be some debate about which group gets prioritized first.
2: When Dr. Burke says, vaccinate for impact, what does that mean?
11: Well, it depends on what impact you're trying to achieve. If, you're, if your goal is to maximize the preservation of human life with a vaccine, then you would, you would bias the vaccine towards older Americans. You would try to get everyone over the age of 75 vaccinated first. There's about 20 million of, of those in that group. Okay. If your goal is to reduce the rate of infection, you would prioritize essential workers. So it depends on what impact you're trying to achieve.
2: And a lot of that is going to rest on the shoulders of state governors. Uh, we'll be covering this. Dr. Gottlieb, That's thank right. you for your insight. On Thanksgiving, many of us enjoyed an abundance of food, but more than 50 million people in this country are unsure of where their next meal is coming from, according to Feeding America. That is the nation's largest hunger relief organization, and its CEO, Claire Babineau-Fontenot, joins us from Dallas this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Your organization says, as a result of the pandemic, one in six americans could face hunger where are you seeing the most need
9: wow what is really staggering is the fact that that's on average across the country there are actually communities in which one in two children face food insecurity what we're seeing is the things that you might imagine so communities of color are particularly vulnerable they're two times more likely to suffer with food insecurity Also, rural communities are far more likely to suffer with food insecurity as well. So, it's definitely not evenly spread, but on average, about one in six people in this country food insecure. That's right.
2: That is staggering. Uh, 17 million of them children. How much of that is coming from school closures?
9: Well, it's a combination of things, actually. About 22 million children in the country uh, before COVID relied upon free and reduced lunch. Um, It consistently is true that families with children are far more likely to suffer from food insecurity. So there are lots of things conspiring right now to cause vulnerable communities to really be reeling right now, not only with a a health crisis, but with a food crisis as well.
2: I want to talk not just about describing the problem, but, but some of the suggestions you might have on solutions here. Um, I, I know that states were ordered last month to uh, do the most they possibly can in terms of providing money for food stamps. The typical payment, according to the USDA, is for a family of four to get $680 to last for a month. Um, according to your organization, a third of the customers you are seeing at your food banks don't even qualify for food stamps. What does that suggest to you about how out of a line uh, the states and the federal government is with the absolute need you're seeing on the front lines?
9: Yeah, well, I'm so glad you started there because that's one of the solutions. That's something we could do right now that could help families that are struggling. So not only do we have many people who turn to us for help, are people who don't qualify, but barely don't qualify under current guidelines. But we also have a number of people who turn to us for help who qualify, but what they receive does not satisfy their needs for their families because of things like what you said. I want to throw out one more statistic, if you, won't, if you don't mind, which is that the Euro, U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics just said that uh, grocery prices right now are at a 50-year high. Mm -hmm. And we're simply not tracking with those increases in demand and and lower supply uh, when it comes to the federal nutrition program. So that's something that we should definitely be looking
2: at at changing. Cost of living just higher than what the social safety net is. I I know you've been in contact with the Biden administration. INCOMING ADMINISTRATION, AND I KNOW THERE'S A DEBATE AMONG SOME DEMOCRATS RIGHT NOW ABOUT WHETHER TO REFOCUS IN SOME WAYS THE AGRICULTURAL DEPARTMENT ON THIS QUESTION OF HUNGER VERSUS THE TRADITIONAL FOCUS ON RURAL AMERICA. WHAT WOULD YOU ADVISE THE INCOMING ADMINISTRATION?
9: Uh, I'D START BY SAYING THAT'S A FALSE CHOICE. Um, THE NEED IS SO GREAT OUT THERE. WE OUGHT TO BE DOING BOTH. THERE'S ABSOLUTELY A ROLE. FOR THE FEDERAL NUTRITION PROGRAMS TO PLAY. THAT ROLE, IN FACT, SHOULD BE ENHANCED. AND THERE'S ALSO A ROLE FOR OUR, our U.S. BASED uh, GROWERS and, AND PRODUCERS TO PLAY. I'LL GIVE YOU AS ONE QUICK EXAMPLE. Um, THE uh, USDA COMMODITIES REPRESENTED ABOUT 1.7 BILLION MEALS OF THE 5 BILLION MEALS THAT OUR NETWORK WAS ABLE TO PROVIDE LAST YEAR. IF NOTHING HAPPENS WITH NO INTERVENTION, we're looking at a 50% decrease in those commodities next year. While we're seeing a 60% increase in demand, I I really believe that we need to be thoughtful about how we look at near-term solutions, mid-term solutions, and long-term solutions. And as I said, I believe that's really a false choice.
2: Well, in the near term, we know uh, the CARES Act, uh, a lot of its support, to Americans runs out at the end of December, leaving potentially almost 7 million people pending eviction, 12 million Americans without unemployment benefits. What is that going to do? Are your food banks prepared to meet what is potentially a lot of new need? Well, I'll tell you, I'll bet on
9: this network of remarkable people to do everything that they can all the time. But the simple truth is, there's no way that the charitable food system can do this alone. It's going to require—it's an all-in fight. It's going to require um, policy interventions, regulatory interventions. It's also public-private partnerships. I think we've Mm -hmm. got to get really serious about about doing something about this, because in our country, we actually have the resources and the ingenuity that's necessary to really solve these problems as nuanced and complex as they are.
2: Well, good luck to you and your organization. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We know worldwide more than a quarter of a billion people are likely to be acutely hungry in 2020, and this crisis is getting worse. The UN's World Food Program is the world's largest organization addressing hunger and promoting food security, and we go now to its executive director, David Beasley. He joins us from Florence,
4: South Carolina. Good morning to you. Good morning to you.
2: That is a staggering estimate in terms of the number of people uh, on the verge of acute hunger. And you say 270 million on the precipice of starvation. How much of this is due to the pandemic?
4: Well, quite a bit of it. In fact, about uh, half of that is due to the pandemic. Uh, When I joined the World Food Program a few years ago, the number of people that were marching toward the brink of starvation was about 80 million people. But over the past three years, pre-COVID, it spiked up to 135 million. Then you asked the question why, and the primary reason was man-made conflict compounded with climate extremes and fragile fragile governments. But since COVID has come in and truly exacerbated every extenuating circumstance we had around the world, the number has gone from 135 million from one year ago to 270 million people marching to the brink of starvation. This is not people going to bed hungry. This is people really struggling to get their next meal.
2: You warned recently that the coming year, 2021, could bring famines of biblical proportions. Where specifically are you most concerned?
4: Well, there's about 36 countries now that we feed 30 million people that they depend on us 100%. We assist about 100 million people on any given day, week or month right now around the world. We need to move that number up to about 138 million, but there are three dozen countries and you talk about specifically, let me just hit a few, Mm -hmm. uh, Yemen, uh, Assyria. Uh, South Sudan, Northeast Nigeria, DRC, and I could keep going from country to country to country around the world. In fact, and if we don't address this, Margaret, this is what we're looking at. We're looking at famines, destabilization, and mass migration. And it's a lot cheaper to come in and prevent it and do it right. I mean, you know if people in the United States are struggling uh, for food, what do you imagine is happening in Niger, Burkina Faso, or South Sudan?
2: I, you know the the U.S. taxpayer is the uh, single largest donor to the U.N.'s World Food Program, but we are going through a crisis here at home. You just heard how painful it is. Um, what impact do you think that economic strain is going to have on the U.S. ability to give to your organization?
4: well it's extremely important that's one of the things i'm talking with leaders around the world especially the united states who is our number one donor as well as european leaders you know when you go back to the syrian war the european leaders did not step in at the right time at the right place and they paid a severe price syria was a nation of about 20 million people the cost of supporting a syrian in syria is about 50 cents per day that same syrian ends up in berlin or brussels or London is 50 to 100 euros per day. And we know that people don't wanna leave home, but if they don't have food and they don't have some degree of peace and stability, they will do what any of us would do for our children. So it's a lot cheaper to come in and prevent the destabilization than it is to have war and conflict afterwards. And the United States has always been the most generous nation mm-hmm. on earth. And I don't expect the United States to back down now because this to be a lot cheaper to come in and do it right and prevent a lot of migration and a lot of destabilization, and in fact, a lot of deaths from hunger. People are dying now. Mm -hmm. About every five seconds, a child dies from hunger. I mean, by the time you and I finish talking, Margaret, we're Mm -hmm. gonna have several dozen children have died from hunger.
2: Before you were a humanitarian, um, you were uh, a Republican governor in South Carolina. You were a politician, so I know you know, Uh, the politics in this country right now, and you understand the complaints from President Trump uh, in regard to the U.S. taking on too much of a burden and outsized responsibility when it comes to solving the world's problems. How do you respond to that argument now at this time of need in this country?
4: Well, one of the things that I have found when it comes to international aid, strategic, effective international aid, I call it the miracle on Pennsylvania Avenue at both ends. You know, when it seems like the Democrats and Republicans, Margaret, they're fighting over everything. But when it comes to food aid and stabilizing nations and preventing famine, it's remarkable to watch the Republicans and the Democrats come together, lay aside their differences and literally do what they can. And it's been quite a miracle to see we went from about 1.9 billion when Mm -hmm. i arrived three and a half years ago to now about almost four billion dollars in the united states and so whether you talk about bush obama or trump and i know biden will have we will have the support we need from republicans and democrats to help the needy people around the world but this is a one-time extraordinary crisis and we're going to have actually we're going to have to ask Mm -hmm. The billionaires to step up in a way they've never done before.
2: All right, uh, Mr. Beasley, thank you for your time. Congratulations to the World Food Program on the Nobel Peace Prize you're about to receive. We'll be back in a moment.
1: Okay, picture this: it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road.
2: Finally today, CBS News foreign correspondent Holly Williams spent Thanksgiving week embedded with the U.S. military in Iraq and Syria as they work to prevent ISIS from regrouping. Here's her report. In
12: eastern Syria, the 82nd Airborne Division is patrolling to stop an ISIS resurgence. It's thought that thousands of extremists are still at large. But Lieutenant Colonel Val Morrow told us the small American presence, about a thousand troops, prevents ISIS from showing its face.
4: Well, Holly, they got to hide. <laughs> there, there, there's not, there's, they're still here. There's not a whole lot of them. But the fanatics are still out there, and and that's who we're going after. It's considered low-level sabotage.
12: To stop ISIS regaining control of lucrative oil facilities like this one, they're guarded by America's Syrian allies, the same ragtag army that beat back ISIS on the ground. But last year, President Trump opened the door to an incursion by Turkey into this area, quickly followed by Russians who moved through this base after the U.S. military withdrew it's led to direct confrontations between American and Russian forces and outright chaos which could provide an opening for Isis according to Kino Gabriel a spokesman for America's Syrian allies
9: instability equals uh, the best environment for Jihadist for terrorist organization to prosper. What
12: was the target? Across the border in Iraq, the number of U.S. troops was almost halved to 3,000 in September. And this month, the Pentagon announced another cut of 500 by January.
0: As we kind of scope down force protection measures and, and, uh, and smaller footprint.
12: General Ryan Rideout told us it won't impact operations, but critics say the cuts give a boost to militia groups in Iraq that are backed by Iran. They've launched scores of rockets targeting Americans this year alone, including in Baghdad this month.
0: They just simply want to stay in charge. They simply want to continue to, to, to have power and money and control.
12: With the American presidency in transition, this unstable region is
2: even more complicated than it was four years ago. Our Holly Williams reporting from Iraq. That's it for us today, thank you for watching. We'll see you next week. For Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator, Dr. Deborah Birx. Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan, El Paso Mayor Margo, former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, Feeding America CEO, Claire Babineau-Fontenot, and executive director for the UN World Food Program, David Beasley. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter and Instagram. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday.
0: If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey.